Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. This, our 25th episode, is special for two reasons. First, we've been wanting to do a crossover episode with my friends at the Hallway Conversations podcast. Hallway Conversations is a podcast run by a pedagogical dream team. Three experienced educators, Dave Mulder, Matt Beamers, and Abby DeGroot, focused on issues in contemporary education, and we've just been waiting for an opportunity to collaborate. And that brings me to the second reason, which is that this episode is about my new book, Interpreting Your World, a book that looks at the world with an eye for meaning, power, ethics, religion, and aesthetics. I'm very happy with how the book turned out and excited for people to read it. Rather than sitting down to interview myself, I got together with the Hallway Conversations team to talk about the book. So we are releasing the interview on both podcasts, and our hope is not just to generate some interesting conversations, but to highlight our two podcasts for our respective listening communities. I will put the links to Hallway Conversations in the show notes, along with links so that you can follow the work that the hosts are doing. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dave, Matt, and Abby about interpreting your world. Justin, I'm just wondering if you can give us a bit of a background um, about yeah this book, the topic, um, why you're exploring this. I know you you like to talk about the imagination a bit, and and maybe just who this book is for. Yeah, this book, interpreting your world, which was not the original title. Um, you know, it's a long process to come to the title. I like the title now, but it went through a few iterations. But the book really came out of my work. Um, trying to put theology and culture together. Um, those are the two things that I'm always working with and trying to put together. Um, as you said in your introduction, both the way that culture shapes the way we think about theology mm-hmm. and Christian faith, and then also the way that Christian faith shapes the way that we go out and care for culture. Mm-hmm. So this book is really written for anyone who is also interested in those questions, um, aware of the way that All of us are looking at the world through a cultural lens Mm. and um, all of us are creating cultures um, uh, in our classrooms or uh, in whatever vocation or institution that we're in. And then also a person who's really wanting to be constructive and and, and to build something. So I'm hoping that it will be read by juniors and seniors in college who are kind of getting ready to transition out of college and go out into the world and to engage the culture, as we say, but I'm also hoping it'll be read by people like a lot of the listeners to your podcast who work in Christian education, uh, pastors, um, lay people who are interested in the intersection of culture and, and faith. Mm-hmm. Now, Justin, in the introduction to your book, I learned a few things about you. I learned that you are a one-time break dancer, which I would pay <laughs> good money to see right now. I learned that you listened to Dashboard Confessional and that you were on whatever social media existed back then. I, I see Q. Zanga. Zynga. With, a, with an X. With you an remember X? that? Yeah. Right. Yeah, Zynga. All right. Yeah. In the introduction, <laughs> you also tell a compelling story about helping a friend rid himself of his secular music. You also ask a compelling question. Does discipleship mean replacing what we loved, and is that how we're called to relate to culture? 
We all work with young people, as do many of our listeners. So my wonder is, why does culture have such a grip on all of us, the, the people we work with, but, but even ourselves? Um, as you say, and you use this, I love this line, all of us are deeply shaped by our culture, culture's conversation about things that matter most. Does helping young people, Justin, helping young people reorient, reorient and reshaping their, quote, sense of what is most real and what really matters mean having to throw away all their cultural artifacts off a, off a bridge? Can theology and culture mix? And I ask this um, because I found this introduction compelling even for me coming from a, a place where it didn't often mix, um, where I would buy a cassette tape. Yeah, I'm that old. Um, <laughs> and it was either thrown out or questioned. And so mm -hmm. I didn't always mm -hmm. know how these things mix. So even for me personally, I find, I found your writing helpful, but I'm just wondering and thinking about the teachers, um, professors, even, um, can theology and culture mix? Can you just talk about that a yeah. little bit? Um, great question. There's a lot there, I think. Um, so first of all, it's already mixed. Right, mm -hmm. uh, we mm -hmm. never have theology or a faith that is not already shaped by culture. I mean, we're speaking a language, right? And the language we speak opens up the world, but it also limits what we can imagine. Um, and so, already, as soon as you are speaking a language or wearing clothes, or you know what I yeah. mean, mm -hmm. being, being in a particular space, you're always being shaped by culture. And so, in that sense, uh, culture gets us before and more frequently than faith does, you know, if you mm. sort of think about it that way. Um, and so we are cultural beings. That's how God created us to be. And I think God likes that. God likes yeah. the diversity of, of culture and the way that humans use their imagination and creativity mm. to make things of the world that are different, to make things of their spaces. Uh, we are also sinful, um, pervasively sinful. And so a lot of the things we make are destructive to us. And so there is a place for replacing things, right? Mm -hmm. That I don't let my kids watch anything they want. I don't let them listen to whatever they mm -hmm. want. I don't let them have phones yet. You know, they're 13 and 11. So I'm not saying that there's never a place to kind of distance yourself from cultural artifacts. But if you try to live a life that is completely separate from culture, it's just incredibly hard. Um, and what you usually end up doing is replacing the artifacts of culture with inferior artifacts mm. um, of Christian culture yeah, yeah. Um, or um, <laughs> the Christian music scene. Right. Kind of, or yeah. you think that all the problems are out there and you forget about, you know, our own hearts are deceptive, mm -hmm. right? And we have sin in us and we have to question inside. It's not just outside. There's a funny story that the librarian told me. He said, you know, uh, schools that have high views of human depravity have really lax library security. You know, it's, it's really easy to steal books from people who, who, you know, <laughs> believe in sin, you know, yeah. for whatever reason. And the reason for that is because you're like, Oh, we all sort of know we're good people here. Nobody would steal books from us. Um, and mm. so it's really easy to steal books. And so the idea there is that all of the dangers outside out there in the mm. world, none of the dangers inside. And so what you really need to be doing is teaching people to discern not just out there in the world, but also in here, because it's possible that the artifacts we're creating in quote unquote Christian cultures are just as destructive or more destructive mm -hmm. in certain ways than some of the things that you find out in the world. 
Hmm. I really appreciate that though, because at, at one point in the book, you talk about how some, some Christians experience, like when you talk about culture, it's always with the definite article, the culture, the culture. Yes. Right? as yeah. if we're like that thing over there, we got to be careful about that. We got to watch out for those people, you know, the right. culture without acknowledging that we also are culture makers and we're part of That's right. this, right? Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you say culture, like, do you have a working definition in mind? Cause we've been throwing that word around a lot here already. Like how, how do you define culture? Yeah. Can you, can one you of the hardest culture? words that yeah, there's right? somebody who said culture is one of the hardest words to define. There's a book that came out that had 56 irreducible definitions of culture, you know, oh, and that was from like the fifties, you know? And so I can imagine just all the ways that you, you talk about culture here. Um, I've found it helpful to think of culture with three W's culture is, um, a world of meaning that we ha- we inhabit. So it's this field of force that we always are moving in. And the p- particular things grab- grabbing our attention. The world is calibrated to grab our attention in certain ways. Like I was just thinking yesterday, uh, because on uh, In All Things podcast, I'm interviewing Caitlin Beatty about celebrity. And it's like, I have this experience where I'm reading the news and all of a sudden I realize I've been reading celebrity news for the last five minutes. And why am I doing that? Mm. You know, So it's the sense that because culture values celebrity, my world is calibrated to draw my attention to those things. So mm-hmm. culture is in that sense, this world that we always inhabit that you can't get out of. Um, you can resist perhaps, but it's always sort of forming and cultivating you. Um, col- uh, culture is also a work that we do, something we can't not do. So everything that we do with our agency, with our creativity is a work of culture. Um, so we are always making culture, whether we want to or not. The question is, is it faithful? Is it Excellent, you know. Um, and then the last one is it's this web that we weave or it's the space that we make. And so in that sense, you're thinking very intentional in terms of um, there is this sort of culture that you're making almost unintentionally, but then there's also this culture that you are trying to cultivate. You're, you know, in, in a school, for example, mm-hmm. in a classroom, you're trying to create an ecosystem of safety or an ecosystem of curiosity or an mm-hmm. ecosystem of where certain things draw your attention, certain things uh, grab onto you. And so it's this world um, that you inhabit. It's this work that you can't not do. And then it's also this web that you're always weaving. Mm-hmm. Justin, how, how do you think about that from an education standpoint? You talk in your book a little bit um, about how you had to make connections with your youth students through the culture, right? And so I think I'm a former high school teacher. And so I always had to have some sort of awareness about the pop culture items that my students were interested in, right? As a bridge into their world so that I could really use that to bridge them into what I wanted to teach them, right? And talk about. So as as an educator, how do you think about culture in the classroom and bringing it in? And do you have any maybe tips for teachers as to how to leverage that well. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, because I think the older you get, the harder it becomes to do that because Agreed. you feel the distance, <laughs> right? Agree. Um, you know, I can't just talk about the matrix, you know, and yeah. Braveheart or whatever, you know, from things when, you know, <laughs> when I was in high school or college. Yeah. I think that I, th- in my book, I talk about when I was a youth pastor in Chicago, um, I had students from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds. I had public school students. I had private school, Christian mm-hmm. school students, I had homeschool students. Um, and we all came from such different places. And so what was the thing that could kind of give us common language it was pop culture. Because mm-hmm. even though these students came from different educational experiences and different ethnic experiences, um, socioeconomic difference, pop culture sort of became the 
the common language mm-hmm. uh, that allowed us to connect to each other. And so in one sense, I was interested in pop culture because I was interested in my students and I wanted to connect with them. Sure. Um, and so that's why I said, even though almost everything I did was really clumsy, <laughs> um, everything I did was... Yeah, a pretty shallow, you know, embar- they were embarrassed, you know, whenever I talked <laughs> about culture, uh, but it, it came from the right place. Yeah. And that place was that I just, I wanted to know their world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to meet them where they were. And if I could, I wanted to speak their language. Um, and so I think that that heart, the desires to connect, I mean, we can all think of a friend that we have that we became interested in something because they were interested in it. Right. Uh, or maybe one of our chi- our own children. Right. You know, you get into something. Uh, my son's really into 3D printing right now. And so I'm into 3D printing mm-hmm. because he, you know, and so I think right. there's this sense of of wanting to join people where they are, sure. to meet them I where they that. are, um, which is a cultural practice as well. A lot of times we think of hospitality in terms of inviting other people into our space. And if you think about the hospitality of Jesus, Jesus more often went into somebody else's space mm-hmm. and was the guest mm-hmm. um, and sat down at their table and, you know, allowed, made himself at home where they were. And I think there is something there for us. I don't think it means that every teacher needs to listen to all of the songs, be on TikTok as much as the students or anything like that. Right. You know, that's exhausting. Uh, <laughs> but I do think that it means being genuinely interested in what our students are interested right. in and, and letting, why. And letting them teach you things. Yeah, for sure. Well. Yeah. 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 I love that. And I also think like, why, why, why this, why mm-hmm. does this connect with them? Um, because we often just want to move to critique and say, oh, this is all the ways that this is malforming them or this, you know, like I would always do, this is what the culture says. This is what the Bible says, you know, mm-hmm. but if you don't spend a long time just paying attention to why has this grabbed their attention? What is it about this that is so compelling, mm-hmm. um, then I think that you miss uh, an opportunity for for understanding. Justin, in my undergrad, I read a book, uh, The Idols of Our Time. I think it was written by Bob Houtswart, if that is how, if that is how you say you it. Got it. Yeah. It seems to me part of the hard work for Christians, Christian schools, even for, for parents, um, is to have the courage to critique some of our own idols. Like, I'm really good at critiquing the idols that exist out in, in culture, it's harder for me to uh, hold myself accountable and critique those in my life. How might we challenge our own idols? You talk a little bit about this, I believe, in chapter two. Um, Are there questions that we can ask or what does this look like? Because it's really easy to look outward um, without looking at ourselves. So where do we begin doing that or how do we go about doing that? Yeah, so in chapter two, which is the chapter about power, uh, the hardest chapter to write, um, I talk about iconoclasm as a distinctive practice uh, for dealing with power. And I say, well, iconoclasm first has to be inward. So we have to critique our own idolatries before we turn to take down somebody else's idols because we have them too. Calvin says that the heart is an idol factory. We're always looking for (laughs) something to give us significance apart from God. And so I think the first way to do that is just to do a basic sort of idle inventory in terms of what is really giving me validation? Uh, what what do I believe names me or legitimizes me? Um, what are the things that tell me who I am? 
Um, and so because it's telling me who I am, because it's legitimizing me, because it's validating me, I give my time, I give my devotion, I give my energy and my attention. It's the thing I think about all, you know, th- those are the sorts of things that that's how we find idols, I think mm-hmm. in general. Um, and there are two different kinds of iconoclasm. One is an iconoclasm of replacement, right? An iconoclasm of cancellation. And some things need to be replaced. Some things um, need to be uprooted in our hearts. And that's hard work to do. Um, And then there's also an iconoclasm of complication uh, where um, maybe as we tell the story of who we are, which usually has us in the hero, you know, Mm. picture, maybe there's another way we can tell that story that complicates that story a little bit and acknowledges not just the, um, the good, uh, and, and there is good thanks to God's grace, but also some of the darker things, you know, some of the parts about us that, um, we don't want to talk about because it, you know, almost delegitimizes the story that we tell ourselves that we're the good guys, you know, we're on the right side of history. We're the, the you know, the people who are, or are the right sort of people that God should love, you know what I mean? And I think that that's the sense of, uh, I think one of the things we do as educators is a gentle iconoclasm, um, of complicating things a little bit because, we like answers that keep us in control and a big part of faith is giving up control and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and handling our vulnerability, stewarding our vulnerability in a way that has some integrity. And so I think a big part of what we do uh, in a way that is age appropriate, of course, um, is to gently complicate things for people. Mm. So I think that's, that's the thing. So first of all, what are our idols? Just kind of figuring that out, you know, as, as a team um, with, with friends. Like, what are the things that really are, for example, for us, for the academy, what are the things that we think are really going to legitimize us? And then what are the things that we can, so how can we, you know, I hate to use the word cancel, but how can we <laughs> replace or how do we kind of uproot some of those things that are just really toxic? And then how do we also complicate uh, yeah. some things that are, Complicated. Yeah. I really like the language of gently complicate. Um, mm-hmm. Because even as I read chapter two, and it makes sense to me that that was a hard chapter to read, I, I found like your posture as a writer was to gently complicate it for us mm-hmm. to be like, would you consider this? Or you need to think more deeply about this and these ideas of power and identity yeah. without making us feel silly or foolish for maybe not having thought of that before. And so um, it's one thing that I found really um, inviting about the book is to be like, you need to think about this, Matt, mm. but don't feel silly for not having thought of that yet. And so I think mm-hmm. you even take that posture as as a writer. Yeah. Uh, I was going to pick up on that same idea. I love that sense of gentleness. I think that's a really important piece of it. But that that whole idea, we're living in a, a culture uh, where everything seems to have to be polarized, right? It has to be this or it has to be that. It has to be white or it has to be black, you know, every everything that way. Mm-hmm. And, and to... Boy, I think that so much as a Christian educator to help students think with nuance, to to help them see Mm. the world that it's not all that easy all the time to just say it's this or it's that. Yeah. And so, yeah, finding ways to open students' eyes to that in a way that's really gentle and humble, but to kind of bring them along into that. So I really Mm. appreciated that. Yeah, I, I call it non-reductive curiosity. Yeah. Um, That's such at, a good academic end, yeah. phrase, yeah. but that, that captures a sense yeah. of it, right? Because the curiosity has to come from this place. Why are we secure? Are we secure because we have all the answers? Because we know the black and the white, we know which side we're on, you know, all of those things. Or are we secure because God has promised to be faithful to us? Yeah. And so um, even if we fail, right, um, our security is not based on our cultural success. 
Uh, and so because of that, that allows us to be curious and to ask questions because we know that our identity is not in jeopardy. Our belonging is not in jeopardy. Uh, we belong because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. God's kingdom will be fine with, you know, without our input, uh, the gates of hell, you know, all of those sorts of things. We feel so much anxiety and, and over some things that, that makes sense. But I think the only sort of cultural posture that is sustainable is one that is very grounded in a sense that we are secure because of what God has done for us and what God is doing and what God has promised to do. And because that's where our security is found, we can stay in difficult questions, in uncomfortable situations, and experience the challenge of those mm -hmm. of those places. Do you find that's hard for students to do, especially those, I think in Christian education, we're not always great at this, right? I think we're better yeah. at <laughs> this so right or this, yeah. right? We're, yeah. we're a lot better at the culture is bad <laughs> and the Bible says this. And right. so I'm just wondering how you experience that with college students. Is it difficult for them to get out of that mindset? Yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, and it's getting increasingly difficult. Okay. Um, I think that in some ways, the values of the online world have worked their way into the classroom. And what I mean by that is there's a fear of, you know, saying the wrong thing online and having cancel culture. Cancel culture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Jonathan Haidt has this really evocative image. He says, we thought that social media would give everybody a voice, but what it really did was gave everybody a dart gun, mm. you know, the ability to, to shoot whoever they That's wanted good. without any consequences. And now that has worked itself into the college classroom where it's very hard for us to have debates or, you know, or to disagree because everybody is afraid of saying the wrong thing. So I read what the students write and I walk around and hear what they say in their small groups. But when it comes time to talk as a large group, everyone's afraid of getting dart gunned. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that in that sense, we have to work really hard to create spaces that, I mean, everyone talks about safe spaces, but what, what is a safe space? Is it the safe space where you can't say anything, you know, where you can't actually disagree with anyone or express any sort of opinion for fear of saying the wrong thing or whatever it is. And so I think that, creating that sense of the depths of security that why are we secure? Why are we okay? Uh, it's, it's not because we have all the right answers. It's not right. because we know everything uh, we're secure for other reasons. And that allows us to be curious. And so I think whatever we can do to create this sort of safety um, that allows us to be curious is important. I'm also thinking of, you know, this idea of secure attachment that psychologists talk about mm -hmm. that if you have secure attachment, which is a sense of, secure base from which to work and safe haven um, to which to return. Elizabeth Hall has written this great article about this. Uh, then students who have secure attachment tend to have higher degrees of uh, tolerance for ambiguity, tolerance for uncertainty, and also intellectual humility. Mm -hmm. So it's okay that I don't know. I'm okay mm -hmm. uh, because that's not where my security is found. And I can tolerate ambiguity. Now, again, all of this has to be age appropriate, right? And mm -hmm. so with younger grades, you know, I always say to students who are going into youth ministry, you're not trying to, you know, get them to question everything. You're showing them that there's good answers for all these questions and you're not the first person to, to ask these questions. Mm -hmm. um, but as students naturally get older and as they start to ask those hard questions, I think that the way that you approach them has to move on from this sort of, you know, you have questions, we have answers, that settles it. You know, I think mm -hmm. that there's this sense of like, no, we have been wrestling with these things for a really long time. 
and it's okay that we have been because our ultimate security is not found in the fact that we figured it out. Right. Yeah. Justin, in chapter three, I found myself thinking about this line that you had, you had, I found it compelling and it, it gets a little bit, I, I found myself thinking about as you were talking about um, creating safe space or as someone I read talked about creating brave space for where people can speak bravely. But, but you say doing the right thing is really the sophisticated management of our public reputation, a way we win honor and avoid shame from the groups in which we seek to belong. Righteousness as reputation management. I found that really powerful per- personally as a parent, as, as a teacher, what would you say to Christian parents Teachers, um, how do we avoid raising um, the term you use is slacktivists? How do we avoid raising slacktivists who are more intrigued with brand management, <laughs> who become people to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God? How do we empower students to live for the applause of heaven, as you say? And I know that's a huge question, but I'm just wondering: is there as we as we have these students in our classroom, we have K to twelve. Um, listeners, we have parents who are all wondering, like, how do we empower these students um, to, to live this way and not just be concerned with brand management? And I ask the question as a 50-year-old, because I know yeah. I can be concerned about brand management. Yeah. Even in a classroom, I'm conscious of that. Am, am I going to say something that might hurt my brand, so to, so to yeah. speak? Yeah, that's a great question. And if you figure it out, let me know. Um, because it is the question in a world where we are all sort of managing our brands all the time, you know, where we are so focused on how do I look? What do people think of me? And encouraged all the more, you know, to think that way. Um, there's a phrase that I like the translation is to be rather than to appear. And I think we are encouraged to appear and who cares if you actually are the thing that you appear to be. Um, and that's a personal struggle as well. Um, and so I think a few things, um, there's a place I think for cultivating things like obscurity, secrecy, servanthood that no one knows about. You know, those are the things where, why am I doing this? I'm not, you know, cause it's easy to do things and to teach people to do things because that's how you signal to your tribe that you belong, right? Um, mm-hmm. I am being a good member of this community. I am just like everybody, you know, just like everybody else. Um, and especially in more homogenous communities, uh, you know, you talk about this idea of virtue signaling where you do something primarily to say, I'm a good person, uh, rather than because you actually care about, you know, substantively the thing. So that's why a lot of times we teach people, well, if you just kind of have the right profile, then you're okay, rather than actually being engaged with, with justice or um, that sort of work. And so I think a big part of what we want to try to do is to cultivate these more quiet humble virtues of obscurity, secrecy, servanthood, Hmm. um, where my sense of my righteousness is not always displayed for everyone. So I go on a mission or service trip and I don't primarily go to take pictures that I can show to everybody, you know, everybody else of all the things I'm doing or, you know, whatever else it is, uh, that there are things that you do that you, that no one else knows about, you know, and, um, and you do that because ultimately you live your life before the Lord, right? And again, that's easier said than done. But I think that that's part of sort of our very image-focused culture to teach people to have integrity or to have integrity, to be the same person everywhere. It means that we have to cultivate disciplines of secrecy and obscurity and um, servanthood that is not always public, always 
you know, putting myself out there to, to show that I am a good person. You know, I'm a good member of this community. Which is very countercultural. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Wildly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In what way, Abby? Sorry, can you just talk about that for a minute? Well, I think about the, the students that we teach who have always had a social media yeah. world. Yeah. Right? They, they haven't known life without a digital footprint. Their parents mm-hmm. were taking photos of them from toddlerhood and posting them online. And I'm guilty right? too, right? With, oh, yeah, yeah. with my own kids. And so I'm thinking about how we model that and even in our own lives and our own social media use. Mm-hmm. Am I doing this for the photo? Yeah. Are we, how, how am I interacting with that? How does that impact this experience? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great questions. Justin, when I was reading chapter four, you tell this wonderful story about Bill Murray coming across a painting. So a bit of a different question here. Um, I found that a wonderful story, actually. I'd never heard that story. Um, and you, you, you link that to asking your students in your class um, about a piece of popular culture that really matters to them. And I can imagine the variety of answers there and at one way for you to actually get to know them about. Yeah. Yeah. But, but my question, so a little bit different, and maybe just to share a, a bit about yourself, what, what's a piece of popular culture that really matters to you, Justin? How would you Ooh, answer the I question? I love this question. Yeah. How would you ask, answer the question you ask your students? Well, and I always do after they all go or sometimes before because I want them to see me model talking about something because they're always afraid that as a professor, I'm not going to handle the things they love with care, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, or that, you know, I think their experience a lot of times has been the only reason we talk about pop culture is to say how wrong it is, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. And they actually know how to do that. They've been trained to do that. They can easily say, oh, these are all the things wrong with it, you know. But that doesn't stop them from consuming it, you know. It, mm. it still plays a really important role in their life. So the thing I always share with them is the television show The Office, so good. And, uh, you know, I've so made, terrible. Makes I've, me so uncomfortable. I've done so many laps through the, the seasons, especially the earlier seasons of The Office. And I think it has, you know, I, I often go to sleep to The Office, you know. Um, it's this familiar thing, you know. I that, have so many questions right that, now. Yeah. That, like, puts, I get this. You know, kind of kind of allows yeah. my, I have trouble sleeping, so it kind of helps my mind wind down a little bit. Um, and so in that sense, you know, you think about a piece of pop culture that you're literally is putting you, you know, like laying you down to rest, you know, that's a pretty important, um, Mm. sort of, I guess, liturgy, um, that I have. And I think there's a few reasons why I really like the office. I mean, it's just really funny. Um, so I think that's the sense, uh, one, one sense is just on a purely aesthetic level, it's very well done and it, it, brings me a lot of delight. I think I also really um, feel like I have an inner Michael Scott, um, <laughs> you know, a person, a part of me that just wants, you know, Michael Scott just wants people to love him. You know yeah. what I mean? And he is um, too unsophisticated to hide it the way that I can hide it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that it helps me not take myself so seriously in a sense to think of myself as I'm, I'm just Michael Scott wanting people to applaud, you know, applaud as I walk in and laugh as I walk away, you know what I mean? Um, And so I think that that that's, and then one other piece is just, it's about just ordinary life. It's, you know, that's where the drama is. It's in the ordinary interactions Mm -hmm. that you have with people um, that beauty is found. And I think the attention to the ordinary and the attention to, I think, even the inner life, you know, all of the different kind of 
confessional times where they interview people that people are, I mean, I'm thinking stupid things like that all the time too. It's just, they gave them a camera and let them right. say it. You know what I mean? And I think all of us are. Put them in front yeah. of a microphone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's maybe a little bit funnier than my everyday right. life. But if you knew all the things I think about, you'd be like, wow, that guy's an idiot. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think it just helps me not take myself so seriously in a sense. Uh, and so, yeah, in that sense, it has been really important to me. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting when I was, I was getting to know you, Justin, and I heard about your passion for the office. I remember I said to you one time, um, you know, like, what are the, what are the best episodes? And like with, in less than 30 seconds, I got a text back that basically the had top 75, had episodes. Top 75 <laughs> episodes. Have of you the watched office. it? I've watched some of it, but I, and I said this to Justin, I can hardly watch it. And yet I watch it. Partly because it helps me understand you yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. like, so wow. that's like me listening to Dashboard Confessional yeah. for my students. You're right. like uh, yeah. watching yeah. The Office to relate yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah, totally. I get that secondhand embarrassment so bad when I watch The, the Office, though, right? Yeah. Like I can't hardly, I'm crawled out of my own skin. There are some episodes I <laughs> yeah. cannot watch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Scott's There's talks, so many good lines, though. Yeah. Like the, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, Justin, I have a question for you. Um, we were talking at the beginning, like, who this book is written for. Do you have people in mind that you say, these people should just not even pick up this book? Who should not read this book? Wow. Everyone should read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great question. I mean, I don't know. I I have always been wary of people whose primary metaphor for engaging culture is culture war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I much prefer the metaphor of culture care. Um, so as has been pointed out to me, there are thorns and thistles, which we resist, but the vocation of gardening precedes the resistance of thorns and thistles. Hmm. And so care ought to be the primary umbrella within which any sort of war or resistance or battling is situated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that, people who are very interested in culture war. And what I mean by that is especially people who need to win and need to stay in power. And um, I think those people will maybe not mm-hmm. appreciate this book uh, so much. Maybe they will. Uh, but I think that it's a different sort of approach to that uh, because a big point of what I'm trying to do is to say, because the world belongs to God, we can fail. Our, we can offer up our work and fail and allow it to die, allow our, what, everything we do to be forgotten, and perhaps God will take it up and weave it into his tapestry in ways that we do not expect. So we don't have to be in charge of our legacy. We don't have to be in charge of making a mark. We don't have to be in charge of winning, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and And so that gives us, again, just all this freedom to experiment and create beautiful things and try things that may fail and fall on their faces. And, and it's okay. Most of what all of us do will be forgotten. That is the nature of culture. It's ephemeral. And yet, you know, John Donne has this wonderful uh, line that I end the book with where he says, you know, God takes it up and, and translates it into a better language. Um, and so this idea that God would take up the work of our hands and make it into something more than we could do. That is our hope, right? It's yeah. not that we have to yeah, figure beautiful. it all out, mm-hmm. you know? And I think as teachers too, I mean, you could all, you could talk about the experiences that you have, uh, both when you were being mentored by other teachers, as well as being a teacher is that you do things and you do your best and sometimes you fail. And yet God takes it up and does things with it that you did not anticipate. And so I think that, um, I'm, 
allergic a little bit to culture war metaphors because it is really insisting on controlling the outcome, mm-hmm. controlling where it goes. Whereas culture care, again, yeah, when you garden, there are things to resist and things to uproot, but that's not the main thing you're trying to do. You're trying to actively plant beautiful things uh, that are life-giving. And I think that's the way that we need to think about um, culture. Makes me think about that's the to think about Christian education even that way, right? Mm-hmm. Is how to create, to plant beautiful things. What does it mean to do beautiful work within the classroom, outside yeah. of the classroom? I, I was really drawn to even your phrase organic servanthood. How do we how mm-hmm. do we yeah, create that space for um, students to engage in organic servanthood? Can you just talk a little bit more about that, about those words, Justin? Yeah. Uh, so organic comes from uh, Antonio Gramsci, and uh, he talked about being organic intellectuals, which is an intellectual that doesn't sort of do his work from the ivory tower, but on the street among mm. the people. So that's one sense of organic. Um, and then servanthood is servanthood is the primary um, distinctive practice of the ethical dimension. What we're really trying to do is to serve, not to rule. And I pulled up this part where I'm talking about the Lord of the Rings. So I had to put that in here somewhere. (laughs) Um, Of course you did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where Gandalf is talking about, you know, he doesn't want the ring. He doesn't want the power to rule over other people. Uh, And he says, uh, the rule of no realm is mine, but all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail uh, of my task Though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come, for I also am a steward. And so he sees his vocation, not even as one that needs to win, uh, but one that needs to make space for things that can grow fair and bear flower and bear fruit and things to come. And that's a different understanding of power, isn't it? It's the power of a servant. It's the power of a steward, mm. the power of a gardener rather than of a of a, a lord and master that wants to control where everything goes. Um, so again, it's, it's a different metaphor, um, but it seems to me like the way that we exercise power, and we have to acknowledge the fact that all of us exercise power, um, there is a power differential between us and our students. There ought to be. Um, and so what do we do with that power? Well, Christian faith... Com- radically reorients the way that we use power. Mm. Uh, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, right? And so servanthood is this matter of making other people successful. Um, And so I think that that's the way we think about, okay, what is the power differential here? How do I have power? And what am I doing with that power in order to make space for things to flower and bear fruit Mm. for the days to come? And if I can do that, I will not have failed. Yeah, that's beautiful. So much of what you're talking about is so applicable in a classroom mm-hmm. environment, yeah. which is why I think it's a great, we asked who should read it, right? I think it's a great read for teachers. Agreed. For that reason. Yep. As we think about, as David Smith would say, reimagining our practice. Yeah. I also found myself, so I grew up in a in a very functional home where aesthetics was... I want to say downplayed or it wasn't paid attention to. And that's not even a criticism. It was just, that was the nature of my upbringing. And, and I know aesthetics is really important to you, Justin. You talk about this a bit in, in great in chapter five. And as I was reading through chapter five, I found myself thinking about how schools are designed, how we set up mm. our classrooms. Um, should beauty matter in our classroom? Should beauty matter in how we design a, br- a brand new school? And um, so I guess my question is, is, 
why it's a big question, but why should aesthetics matter even in, in a classroom or, or in our home? Um, I'm, all, I'm always struck, and I found myself again thinking about this. When I would drive around with my dad, he'd always point at Mount Baker in the Pacific Northwest. He'd say, look at Mount Baker. Look at Mount Baker. Mm-hmm. Look at Mount Baker. He would, wherever we were driving, look at Mount Baker. Look how beautiful it is. And um, I'm just wondering what, what might aesthetics have to do with the classroom or, or even school design? Wow, what a great question. Um, we should do a whole podcast on that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, why does beauty matter? Well, I mean, first of all, um, I think one of the best things we can get students to ask is what does it mean to live a beautiful life? Mm. Um, a beautiful life is a life that is compelling, coherent. There's a level of excellence. There's a level of delight. And so if you're trying to get students to ask, well, what does it mean to live a beautiful life? Uh, then you also have to think of the way that beauty is nourished in their imagination. And I always say, you know, a lot of us have grown up in contexts that are a little bit impoverished, especially visually. Um, in the Reformed tradition, we do really good with music, uh, not as much with visual art or dance, uh, things like that. And so all of us have been formed imaginatively in ways that we have strengths and then we also have deficits. And so I think that's one of the things that we can think about or what are the what are the deficits, what are the strengths that we have? How can we lean into our students' aesthetic formation and, and what are the ways that we need to supplement uh, what's, what's missing there? And then the other thing I would say is the thing, by the way, chapter five is my favorite chapter in the book. If I can say that about my own, <laughs> my own work, it's my favorite chapter in the book. It's the last lens that I use. And in some ways I feel like it's the most important lens. Uh, because aesthetics has to do with things that we do just for the heaven of it, mm. just for the delight Beautiful. and the pure mm-hmm. joy that we find in it. And you have to have things in your classroom that allow you just to play uh, and and to have delight. Uh, in fact, the vision of the New Jerusalem in Zechariah is a vision of kids playing in the streets. That's part of the vision of the kingdom is that it, ha- it has to be a place where kids can play. Um, because play is people, little image bearers doing things just for the heaven of it, just for the pure joy that they find in it. And if everything is functional, if everything is just like, well, we're doing this for some, some particular purpose or particular reason, then we're not really allowing the imagination to fully exercise itself because what the imagination is trying to do is to tease out all the possibilities, uh, which is what God has called us to do is to unfold the potentialities and possibilities of creation and, um, and so there has to, like, when I think about just aesthetic formation, it's not just about, you know, maybe putting art in the classroom or thinking about the way that the classroom is designed, but what are the ways that you design the day, design the hour so that there is some sort of joy or delight, mm-hmm. you know, or, or play, um, that people get to do things just because it's, it's delightful. You know, there's a phrase from Marilyn Robinson, uh, learning something because of the unaccountable joy of learning it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, just the joy of learning things, you know, mm-hmm. not just because it has some sort of pragmatic purpose, but because it feels unaccountably good to know, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, it's beautiful. That that reminds me, one of my favorite things when I was an elementary school principal was just walking around at recess and watching these students play and make up rules and scream and even solve conflict and be creative and, and yeah, use their imagination in ways that you're like, how did you think of that game? And it was just simply because 
there was no rules. They could, they could just do it. And, and I think we know that as parents, right. Of mm. watching our, what there's something beautiful about watching our kids play and play should matter in our schools. And, mm-hmm. um, we can take ourselves pretty seriously sometimes in, in mm-hmm. our classrooms and, Maybe that's a good call reminder for for educators, for the school leaders to to embrace playfulness themselves, right? That's that's part of the beauty of what we get to do in yeah. in all these things. And then and in staff rooms and in yeah. meetings and in professional development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we have a rule on Sundays uh, until five o'clock. You're not allowed to be on any screens, and it's hard for all of us, and not just for <laughs> the kids. <laughs> but my kids always make something. You know, yeah. they always they my son made this like Mandalorian armor out of cardboard one day. You know, my daughter makes games. They they do all sorts of things. That's why I started asking, "What did you make today?" You know, and that's that's I think a good question for all of us. What did, what did you make today? You know, um, yeah. Uh, Andy Crouch talks about the difference between devices and instruments, and yeah. we need to move from devices mm-hmm. to instruments. Mm-hmm. And I, I made music. You know, I played the piano, or I, yeah. you know, uh, why? Well, be, just for the heaven of it. You know, yeah. just because mm-hmm. it was, it brought me joy. You right. Know? Justin, one last question. Um, this idea of interpreting our world, um, what encouragement, um, we have teachers who are going to be starting in their classrooms this week, next, or, you know, that are, are beginning their school years. What encouragement or words of advice or what could you say to them about, about how to help students, help, how to help young people interpret the world in which they're mm-hmm. living? Yeah, um, we need Christian education because we need generative Christian interpretation of the world. Uh, as human beings, we are interpreting creatures, right? We can't help but interpret the world. And your interpretation is not just what you think about the world, it's the way you live in the world. So your interpret the original title for this book, my title was Your Interpretation is Your Life, uh, because I felt mm-hmm. like it kind of captured that sense of, it's mm-hmm. not just about thinking all the right things about culture or faith, but my interpretation of scripture is the way I live out scripture, right? My interpretation of culture is what I do with it, you know? And, um, and so there's just that sense of all of us are natural interpreters and Christian educators have this amazing privilege to get to teach students to interpret the world Christianly, to see the world through the lens of creation and fall and redemption of a world that is loved by God has not been abandoned by the creator, which means that we don't have to be anxious, right? We can, like I said before, we can, we can, stay in uncomfortable situations uh, and and live a life of love because uh, the world has not been abandoned by God, but God loves the world. God is redeeming the world for good. Uh, and we get to partner with God and participate in this beautiful mm-hmm. thing that God is doing, uh, which is not always an easy thing, but it is a beautiful thing uh, that God is doing. And so that would be my encouragement is just to to recognize that you are already an interpreter to recognize the uh, gift that you have to get to teach Christian interpretation of things, uh, and then to not be afraid, uh, because uh, the world is securely held by the good Lord uh, who loves it and who's redeeming it. for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.